This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today... Tanae Lynn Harris. She's the director and co-founder of The Bloom Collective, a Baltimore-based support network that focuses on providing a nurturing, supportive, and empowering space for mothers, parents, and families along the pregnancy and postpartum journey. Altruistic living was a fact of life for Tanae growing up, and as she got older, altruism turned to activism, and activism turned to reproductive justice. Oh, they finally did it. After 50 years of control issues on the Republican side and about 10 years of complete fucking incompetence on the Democrat side, Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that generally protected a woman's right to have an abortion, is no more. The minute the Supreme Court handed down their decision, trigger laws in many states across the nation further curtailed a woman's rights and body sovereignty in the name of, I honestly don't know. The old saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child, but my guest Tanae Lynn Harris would assert that it takes a village to provide a safe and healthy space for a family before, during, and after a pregnancy. She spent her childhood traveling up and down the East Coast, living with different parts of her extended family in Lancaster, PA, Norfolk, Virginia, and Macon, Georgia. Her experiences with communal-based care sparked her passion for birth work and reproductive justice, but her path to leading the Bloom Collective, a Baltimore-based support network, wasn't just a straight line. In fact, some might say her journey to becoming director of the collective started with failure. Before she finished high school, Tanae began applying to colleges and... I applied to Temple in my senior year and I did not get in. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um... And, you know, a learning curve. So I had moved to Atlanta, Georgia for a year to just, you know, get an idea of where I wanted to go. Um, And I also went to a community college in Lancaster and then transferred to Community College of Philadelphia. And then I had got accepted into Temple after two years. Um, But I think even that journey, you know, a lot of times, of course, we can talk about the systems and the structures for sure. But I also think in this moment, it was what was right for me through time and space and what really needed to happen. Um, I feel like I really needed some time to have a better understanding of who I was. I had spent so much time kind of with my own family that I didn't feel like I really had a deeper understanding of who I was. And, and not that it was going to be, you know, like a solid plan, but just who was I away from my family in a very loving way of saying that. Um, and so, yes, I went to Temple. Uh, it was one of the greatest experience I've ever had. Um, had such amazing professors to be rooted in a community-centric uh, university in that way. And also that would be depending upon what uh, school you were in at Temple University and what you were rooted in. So I first went into Temple as a sociology major and uh, very quickly had gotten cultivated in um, the Department of Africana Studies, also known as the Department of African-American Studies, where it was like my world was expanded. It's multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary study. You learn so much that really centers the collective genius of Black folks without deficit-based understanding, without deficit-based language, but really who are we in our humanity away from the white gaze, away from racism and white supremacy. And so really looking at the genealogy of um, 
centering humanity, what is it that Black folks have done across the diaspora that has really contributed to a global uh, understanding and knowledge base? And so it was one of the greatest experience I had. And at the time, we had our chair of the department, who was Dr. Nathaniel Norman, and he had opened up what was called the Center for uh, African, was the Center for African American for Public Policy and African. I think it was the Center. Goodness gracious, it's been that long. <laughs> <laughs> the Center for African American Research and Public Policy. That's what it was. And um, really, the idea was everything that we're learning here in undergrad, folks working in their master's and their PhD, how are we making this connection to community, which was oftentimes hard for me within sociology, where it wasn't making this connection to the community that we were walking outside of every single day. And so here we're learning from Philadelphians, we're looking at being so close to Cecil B. Moore, being connected to um, the founders of the Black Panther Party in Philadelphia, the knowledge base of having someone connected to uh, the Move family, uh, John Africa, Pam Africa, Ramona Africa, and then also looking at someone like Mamiya Abu-Jamal, who um, had a radio station at Temple University, but making all of these connections historically but then also honoring the everyday life of Black humanity. How do we support not this hierarchical sense of the way uh, we go to the university to talk down to the members in the community, but how are we learning on the same plateau, which was really, you know, essentially how it was always supposed to be, us working in unison and working together to be able to support. So knowledge, our knowledge base and our ways of expanding that knowledge as really an opportunity to really support one another, which is really that Ubuntu model, right? Like I am because you are, and because you are, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And a person is a person because of people. It sounds like, as you mentioned, not getting into Temple the first time, that was good for you because you needed to go on that journey of self-exploration. But when, and, and when you were ready and you got into Temple, it seems like your time there expanded upon and builded on everything that you had experienced with that communal lifestyle growing up um, between like Lancaster and Norfolk and, uh, and Macon, Georgia. So it sounded like it was, it was a perfect fit for you. Yeah, you know, in ways that we don't realize all come together, you know, and the society in which we live in oftentimes says it has to look this way. And really, it can really just become full circle and expand in so many different ways. So, yeah, exactly what you said, Jason. Yeah, I, I've had to learn through my own life experiences and stuff like that. Um, I, I only applied to like one college, but looking back, I wish I had done college completely differently. But um people when we always talk about really shame and regret and stuff like that have i made some decisions that i regret or some decisions that i might feel ashamed of yeah sure but i realize or i guess i have the wisdom now to know that like maybe those decisions just needed to be made in that moment and perhaps if i made different decisions i wouldn't be where i am today and i feel like all things considered i'm doing pretty good today. So I think we all have to always be mindful of that, that um, setbacks and and even the word failure, it, it has such a negative connotation, but people aren't, people of course are made by their successes, but what allows them to be successful are, are getting through those failures. Yeah. Yeah. I think about um, 
believe it was Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative. And I remember years ago, he had mentioned like, essentially summing it up, like through time and space, our story is going to change. Like it's hard to understand it in the moment. Like if you lose a job, like your feelings are hurt, you, you know, <laughs> you feel like you did something entirely wrong. What could you do better? You're a failure and so on and so forth. But really, as we mature and we we really start to understand the full circle of our story and where it is leading us and seeing that it's really a journey and not a destination, that really that story shifts. And so some of that deficit way of understanding um, our journey actually can can change um, again through time and space. Mm, absolutely. So after you graduated from Temple University, uh, based off the research that I did, it seems that you immediately just jumped right in and started working in civil rights and and community organizing. Mm -hmm. And how, how has that work changed between doing it five years ago or even when you had first graduated from Temple uh, versus today where it seems most activism is done digitally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was actually like getting kind of my stripes, and I say that lovingly, when I was at Univer um, Community College of Philadelphia, like rooted in community and going to different events um, and just even my own knowledge was being expanded. Like this surface level way of understanding the world was being expanded to even look at things even more complex. And then having to hold space for those moments that you're unearthing perhaps lies even you have been told, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that you're like, wow, this whole time, you know, for example, Christopher Columbus, I had been told Christopher Columbus found a new world. And now you, you are finding out that, no, that's not necessary. So these revisionist histories or uh, the genealogies and historiographies that we must uncover start to really expand. But there was something about being really rooted in community and to be around, you know, an intergenerational grouping of people who are helping you to be more cultivated and expanded. And so I would say, like, in that moment, we weren't really using social media as an organizing tool. You were really having to go to meetings and events and gatherings and just be with community. And that was you were meeting people where they were. And that was within your physical body being present or even phone calls and checking in on each other and finding like moments. I remember we would have the breakfast club on Saturdays and professors and business owners and students will come together or even the Saturday school that folks like Dr. Anthony Montero would pull together. And it was an opportunity for folks to get together at the Church of the Advocate in so many different meetings and you meet people and you're connecting. And so when we're thinking of the now, these moments of organizing digitally is 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 both amazing and I think also creates a little bit of a challenge because what I feel like I'm also seeing are these moments of folks becoming like avatars, right? So you mm -hmm. can almost become a fictitious character without necessarily really doing the work. And the people who are doing the everyday work in their everyday lives, we don't know too much about, but they're the ones who are out there doing it. But the people who get the credit are the ones who have all of the followers and they're considered having 
most influence, right? And so you can become something. I mean, I've even been in spaces where I have seen people years ago, someone was sitting right next to me and they said that they were out in California organizing and they were sitting right next to me in a cafe in Harlem. Oh, that that was a moment for me to really realize, because even at that point in time, some of these folks were my peers. I wasn't using Twitter. I I hadn't necessarily had that cultivation or the upbringing. I was very like people organizing, connecting and so or letter sending um, and so on and so forth. And so it was very, very different to really start to see that. And then we have these moments of like hashtag fame where words that we've always used in community or how we expressed ourselves. Now people are fighting over who said it first based upon a hashtag. But when we understand genealogy and historiography, we know that there's really nothing new under the sun. And so these moments of us really thinking that we are the chosen one or we did something innovative is really just these moments of replication. But I think when we are kind of disconnected from community, when we're disconnected from elders and accountability, oftentimes we can go out and run amok. And I think sometimes when we say, you know, these are our leaders, I think sometimes we have to ask the question, who has said that narrative? And I don't know that this moment of, you know, digital organizing as as amazing as it is, you know, even my partner does uh, levels of digital organizing and when done right and with great intentionality and truth telling, it could be an amazing tool. But I think we also have to look at the ways and how we're not always our most whole selves and we're oftentimes gravitating and looking for attention that sometimes can create these avatar moments that can also be kind of performative, um, not necessarily those who are rooted in the everyday work with everyday people. Mm, That was a whole word there. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of people out here who are going to listen to that and they're not going to like, the way it made them feel because it hit a little too close to home. But uh, I think that it was, it was very, uh, very well said. (laughs) Um, So when did you realize you needed to continue your education at the graduate level to make the impact you wanted to make when we talk about organizing and activism and, and and restorative justice? Mm. Well, I I think, well, first I, I, if I can kind of, maybe help this full circle was, you know, I'm doing this organizing in Philadelphia. I had an opportunity to do it on my own campus. And, you know, the goal to like fortify right relationship between like the university and the community and center the community, not necessarily the university. And so then I had the opportunity as an organizer because of the work I had been doing um, with supporting community on the case of Mamiya Abu-Jamal, um, I had was asked to become one of the organizers with the NAACP Legal Defense Educational Fund. And so there I was within the criminal justice project and we were doing a lot of work on like abolition, capital punishment, um, juvenile life without the possibility of parole, education, voting rights and so on and so forth. And so it was there where oftentimes I would have to go to various prisons, particularly um, my clients who were on death row. And you really start to look at the 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 lack of humanity within the prison system, particularly those who were in supermax prisons. 
And so, you know, when I would go into the prisons and working in community, I was learning about women who were being shackled um, while giving birth in the prisons. And it really piqued my interest even more so around like, wow, how these prisons are centered where a woman where this is such um, a sacred time Mm. in their life is now having an even more traumatic experience. And then their babies might not be able to be with them before a short period of time before having to uh, be given away to a family member or put into foster care or be adopted. And so just thinking about those moments of um, breaking apart families um, because of this idea that this person is a quote unquote bad person. And so I really didn't realize how much my abolitionist work or really the recontextualization, the abolitionist work is reproductive justice work. And so going to go visit clients and those moments of contention and harm and pain and being disconnected from family and community really is a reproductive justice issue for both men and women and even non-binary folks, anyone in the prison system, it can cause grave harm to you. Um, So when there's inequities in education, that's a reproductive justice issue. When people are unemployed or underemployed, that's a reproductive justice issue. When people do not have food, it's a reproductive justice issue. So anything that keeps us from living our most fulfilled life is really a reproductive justice issue. And oftentimes we see all of these issues and challenges, these social justice issues and ills, as operating within silos, but they're all interconnected and interwoven and essentially can cause great harm and disconnect and fragmentation to families and community. So you you answered my next question about when did you realize you wanted your work to transition and focus on reproductive health and and justice? And, And as you said, it it, it is all really intertwined and connected. Um, so before we move on to um, the aspects of like ethnography uh, in your work, uh, could you just give a brief overview of what you ended up studying um, in grad school and, and where you went? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went to University of Pennsylvania and I was in um, the Center for Social Impact Strategy. So essentially it's um, about half of your master's, essentially. And what I really wanted to utilize with that is so many years of organizing, being in like the nonprofit sector, the social impact sector. I really wanted to look at all of those things connected. If Black women and Black mamas had the ability Um, to really center their gifts, talents, and their genius, how might that change situations in community, right? So oftentimes Black women and Black mamas oftentimes have to go to very toxic work environments. And often when they have children or have to take care of family members, our schedules are more rigid. We don't have as much fluidity. And then we also have to center the fact we're taking care of everyone. We're paying the bills. We're trying to maintain the house. And sometimes we can be doing it on our own. So I really wanted to learn more of the impact strategy, how more Black women and Black mamas could get more involved and how to be an anchor of support. And so really it was all of these things kind of interconnected, like organizing social strategies um, and impact models really coming together to really think through how do we do this work in community? 
And so a lot of times we think of um, what some will call like big C capitalism and little C capitalism and big C capitalism is there's going to be people without, you know, you're going to make all of this money. But I would say the little C capitalism essentially are those who just want to maintain culture and be able to provide for their families on their own terms. And so they can be folks who own dry cleaning businesses. There could be folks who have an art gallery, someone who has a yoga studio or a hairstylist. And their goal is ne- isn't necessarily to make, you know, millions upon millions of dollars and cause harm to other folks or oppress other folks, but to really get the money from community and essentially be able to give that money back to their family and also back to community as well. And so thinking about all of those impact models, how do we center those small important hub businesses within our own communities as being anchors of sustainability. We'll be right back after a quick break. And when we return, I continue my conversation with Tanae Lynn Harris. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. And before the break, my guest Tanaylin Harris talked about how reproductive justice is all-encompassing and not solely based in care for pregnant families. As we continue our conversation, Tanae explains how ethnography ties into birth work and how she started the Bloom Collective. So next, what I want to move into is this idea or this intersection of ethnography and um, reproductive justice and, and and birth work in its simplest terms an ethnographer is somebody who studies like the specific culture or like the culture of a particular society or, or group um and and again in doing my research of you um i learned that that is something that you are versed in and you use that in your ongoing effort to quote decolonize the space of uh reproductive justice and birth work. So can you give a little bit more of a um, like inside look at, at how that works, um, <laughs> how ethnography factors into doing work as like a doula or a reproductive specialist? It's really just being an organizer. <laughs> it's, it's really organizing and being with your community and understanding your community um, more deeply and with greater intentionality and also other cultures and ways of being and becoming. And so the decolonizing part of that is really how we reframe the stories that we have been told um, and how we understand those stories. And so when we start to uncover um, our own genealogies, what has come before, how do we understand a phenomenon in those moments of re-remembering. And so Sometimes what we're told, we're remembering from that vantage point, but there are moments where we have to re-remember, really find the ways um, of decolonizing the story, reframing the story, and repurposing the story that takes away a really deficit base that really centers the people who are most impacted and really listening to their stories. And so how does that then move into our work as birth workers is really much the same thing. And so when we're even thinking around like reframing research, how it centers 
um, and decolonizing research is like, how does it center the folks who it most impacts? How do they tell their own stories? And how do we tell those stories exactly from their words that is actually away from interpreters, right? And so uh, Jacob Carruthers talks about this, or he did talk about it, he had passed away, but how we must tell our own stories away from interpreters. And so how important that is when we're thinking of our connection to our clients, how we understand these issues, and particularly when we're thinking around how people frame the Black maternal mortality crisis, is really you have to center the fact that there's this idea that there's something wrong with our race as Black women, or there's something wrong with our bodies as Black women, but we really have to recenter that it's racism that is creating the harm. It is racism that is the risk factor. It's not our race. And so when we get to that point, we really get to the issues at hand at the ways in how folks are trained in medical school, the deep roots and tenets of racism and white supremacy and how it shows itself in our everyday lives and our everyday work and how people hold on to all of that harm and oppression in those ways of being socialized that you equally see black women's bodies and black folks' bodies as being disposable, that you don't listen to our stories, you don't listen to our experiences when we tell you that we're in pain or something's going on, or when we're homeless, you think that there's something innately wrong with us as opposed to the conditions that have been created to set up to make it extremely hard. And so essentially it's how do we re, uh, re-remember and how do we share um, our own narratives and our own stories that really center our experiences, our deep loves, our gifts, our talents, and our genius. That's away from the deficit that really centers our abundance and, and, and our ways of being and becoming. Can you talk to me about the Bloom Collective, um, how you got the idea and what some of the services uh, are, that are offered? The Bloom Collective really comes together with, because of an opportunity to have a space. And so there was a couple of birth workers. Uh, we all had known each other for a few years and there was an opportunity to like have a shared collective space together. And, you know, we were like, hey, how about we do this? At first, we were thinking we would just be like a co-working space of different Black women-owned businesses centering reproductive health and reproductive justice, maternal health care, and so on. And very quickly, the community was like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, we're not understanding. Why aren't all of y'all just solely working together and building together? (laughs) And so literally within like a short span of a few months, we pretty much, you know, kind of reemerged and was really thinking through the fact that we all have families and we all um, live very different lives and have very complex schedules, but how could we do the work as Katie Cannon, uh, uh, Dr. Katie Cannon would say is like, do the work that your soul must have. And so we all were coming in. So you have Stephanie, who's a certified nurse midwife. You have Desiree, who is a reproductive psychotherapist and social worker. You have Amber, who's a perinatal therapist. You have myself within like the research and social impact realm. And then also going into being a lactation specialist, a perinatal educator and a postnatal doula. And so we all, you know, wanted to work together and fortify those relationships of how do you provide high level support Uh, to mamas and birthing persons along the preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum journey. And so we work collaboratively to provide uh, holistic care. We do childbirth education, uh, postnatal doula, lactation support, perinatal therapy. Um, 
and so many other supports and services along the pregnancy and childbirth and postpartum wellness um, journey. And so, you know, we also do a lot of advocacy as well. And so we're connected hyper locally in Baltimore, but we also support a lot of clients in Howard County and Montgomery County. And in addition, we also do a lot of work on the national level and also international level. And so it was, how do we do this work collectively? How do we find moments of us being able to provide um, insight and skill set and licensing and certification for folks who want to do this work in Baltimore and beyond? And so currently we have trained 45 uh, black and brown folks to become certified breastfeeding specialists and about five of them have already moved on to become international board certified lactation specialists, which is like the creme de la creme of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So it's been really exciting to just kind of be like a hub and an anchor of support for birth workers, skill set building, but then also really doing the work in the everyday to support um, pregnant and birthing folks. Okay. How does your work with the Bloom Collective differ from your work as an advisor on the board of uh, various community-based organizations that deal in the same industry of uh, birth work and, and reproductive uh, justice? I mean, they all come together, right? You know, we were talking about how reproductive justice um, hits every single thing, right? And so every moment that we can center our collective genius, that we can center the supports that are needed um, in our own communities allows us to really create wholeness in our own communities, which essentially becomes the reproductive justice all in itself. Um, and so we really just move at the speed of trust if we cultivate and be in relationship with each other. So, you know, being on these advisory boards are moments for us to galvanize together, um, to share our collective genius with one another, to support each other and then find these moments of entry uh, to be able to support everything that we possibly can in community. How do you prevent somebody who has like an agenda to make it so that they are like the star player or they want it to be known that like they're the authority figure and everybody should defer to them? <laughs> you mean gatekeepers? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, that's almost inevitable, and particularly when we think about the society in which we live in. But I think it's really about that collaborative, collective way of being together. So when we build relationship with each other, um, it really offers an opportunity for folks to have a better idea. And it also offers an opportunity for accountability. And so that's the part when you have people who do this work in isolation and want to center self. Oftentimes, folks who are doing this work in community know that that's a red flag. Mm -hmm. um, but there will be these moments that, you know, the folks who get the limelight and uh, Ella Baker talks about this. You know, we you know, folks don't need the limelight star studded folks like every single individual has a role in our own liberation. And so whether you are the person who's making sandwiches, you know, so you have all of these folks who are doing things in the everyday are the things that we need that help kind of like bring the masses of people together. And it show it should never be a single individual, which is this messianic kind of like hierarchical, like organizing of centering an individual person, but really how do we ensure that we're together? So, you know, even if we're thinking about like the Black Mamas Matter Alliance is 
this is an alliance of so many different folks where it's intergenerational who are coming together, who've been doing this work for years. You know, some folks have been doing it all the way up for 50 and 60 years. Even if the alliance is new, the people who make up the alliance are doing this work and there's accountability and there's supports and there's mechanisms, which is also the same thing of how we do this work in community where we're really looking at our ecosystem, we're building right relationship. You know, and even if we're thinking about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he would always say show the clean glass, right? So we don't have to necessarily always pinpoint the behaviors of other people, but when you really just show the clean glass and you really stand in your power and what is righteous and true and virtues, that's really where we begin to see the levels of change and transformation in those moments of being able for folks to start to uncover the, the fog that might be on their eyes or their lenses to be able to see, ah, okay, this person is really centering self and they really don't care about our collective uh, liberation. They really are more, cons- more so thinking about their individual liberation as opposed to our collective. What is coming up next for the Bloom Collective? And then also what is coming up next for you, uh, I guess, personally and professionally? Jason, I'm taking one day at a time. <laughs> if this pandemic hasn't taught me one thing, I mean, I think, of course, we want to plan, but there are some moments I'm literally taking it one day out at a time. But I think in regards to Bloom, um, we're really just, you know, trying to continue to do our work to expand, to bring more people onto the team. Uh, we actually will be having a second site in Howard County. We've been having a good amount of folks from the Howard County area who have been reaching out to us. So this is a really amazing opportunity. We'll be stationed at the third co-working space, which is a Black woman-owned co-working space, which centers uh, women of color, um, uh, who are entrepreneurs who are trying to do collective work together. So it's amazing that, you know, Baltimore city is our hub spot. And then all of our practitioners will also be meeting uh, with clients in Howard County to be able to provide ongoing support as well. So we're really excited about the expansiveness. Um, You know, we are a social enterprise. uh, We are a business and we also have a fiscal um, sponsor um, as well with fusion partnership. And so for us, it really offers an opportunity to ensure that we never turn anyone away for their inability to pay. And so we understand the diverse financial circumstances of folks in our community. And we really center the fact that folks need the quality care um, that they you know, desire and that they deserve. And so we never wanna turn anyone away. We wanna bring more people on our team and we want to continue to expand um, to really be that community anchor and um, that community anchor in a reproductive health and justice world in Baltimore City and beyond. Awesome, that's amazing. Um, well, uh, Tanae Lynn Harris, listening to your your story, I mean, you have a lot of titles and you wear a lot of hats, but it sounds like at the end of the day, what you are is a healer. Um, mm-hmm. And I really appreciate the the opportunity to to speak with you. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you as well. I appreciate this moment with you. That was Tanae Lynn Harris of the Bloom Collective. Head over to bloominbaltimore.com to learn more about the collective and find them on Instagram at bloominbaltimore. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V, and distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color drop the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate five stars and leave a review. Learn more about Local Color at wypr.org.